Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Indonesia is the biggest country that no one talks about. It's the world's fourth largest country by population. It's in the top 10 economies by purchasing power parity. And on the 14th of February, Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy, will stage the world's biggest single day general election. So what do we need to know? What does Indonesia represent? Well, regular listeners will know that Indonesia's elites led a mass anti-communist purge in 1965 that saw one million people slaughtered. You can hear more about that in episode 121, where we interviewed Vincent Bevins about his book on the matter. Now, those massacres put an end to what was at the time the third largest communist party in the world and the largest one that wasn't in power. This event put an end to any socialist and left-wing hopes in Indonesia. So what does a country without a left look like? What sort of ideas fill that void? Today, our guest, Betty Hadiz, will tell us about Suharto's authoritarian new order that ran the country until 1998, and the democracy that followed, and the oligarchy that still controls things, as well as the Islamic movements that are able to channel some social grievances. What does politics look like when elections see populists face off against each other, but in a situation in which all these populists just represent different wings of the oligarchy? Here's me speaking to Vedi Hadiz. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to be here uh, with Vedi Hadiz, uh, one of the foremost scholars of Indonesian politics and political economy, who was also a student activist during the Soharto years in Indonesia and is uh, now the director uh, and Professor of Asian Studies at the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Hi, Vedi. Welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? It's not very often that I'm uh, speaking to somebody based in Brazil, to be honest, being an Asia specialist. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we managed to find a time zone, which which um, kind of worked in, in both <laughs> Melbourne and Sao Paulo. Um, so that was good, um, my evening and your morning. So listeners will have been, long-time listeners to this podcast will be a bit familiar, I think, with uh, the mass anti-communist purge of the mid-60s, uh, which we discussed in an episode a few years back. So I wanted to maybe pick up the story before we work towards discussing uh, this year's elections um, and various issues about uh, Islamic politics, about populism, to pick up the story from 1966 onwards. If you could just briefly describe what the new order was. All right. Well, after 1966, the new order was established basically on the basis of a coalition of, uh, of uh, the military, some uh, elements of the uh, salaried middle class, and also uh, Islamic uh, social organizations. 
So these were some of the uh, forces that felt that uh, their interests had been threatened by the political and economic policies of the previous Sukarno regime. Now, the middle class was in particular prone to supporting the military because of high inflation during the late new order, uh, sorry, uh, late old order, which uh, caused their salaries, salaries to plummet in value. Now, so the basis of the new order is that's a kind of authoritarian developmentalism. And its legitimacy really was based on its ability to deliver economic development. And it did maintain uh, high rates of economic growth for most of its uh, tenure, that is from 1966 to 1998, but uh, corruption, abuse of power, and non-transparent kinds of uh, practices made sure that economic and political power became centered onto something that I've called in previous writings an oligarchy, which consisted of an, al an alliance between the big business and the upper echelons of the politico-bureaucratic apparatus and the military. And this oligarchy benefited the most from the New Order's uh, authoritarian developmentalism, Although, you know, a large middle class or a fairly large middle class came to develop as well and poverty rates uh, fell, etc. But uh, that uh, uh, legitimacy was undermined severely by the Asian economic crisis of 1997-98, where it was shown that the, the uh, underpinnings of new order economic development were actually quite fragile. Uh, based on uh, e easy access to uh, foreign uh, capital uh, markets, uh, 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 foreign uh, investment, and also monopolistic practices internally, which uh, favored uh, cronies of, of the regime. So uh, basically, uh, Indonesia was uh, the worst performing of the Asian economies that were hit by the Asian economic crisis, 97, 98. The oligarchy therefore splintered, abandoned Suharto and provided room for a uh, mass-based movement to develop because you know, the people were suffering from this uh, mm. all the way, for the first time, all the way from business down to the middle class, all the way down to the working class and the peasantry and, and so on. So there was something that unified them for a uh, brief period of time, and that was to uh, remove Suharto. Uh, finally, uh, with internal pressure and also pressure from overseas, actually, uh, the IMF, uh, the Americans and so on, uh, who lost faith in Suharto, who, had, who they had been propping up for 30 years. He resigned in May uh, 1998. 
which heralded the start of what we call reformasi in Indonesia, which is the, the democratization period. And it's been a, uh, a heralded uh, democratization process uh, globally. It's considered to be a uh, uh, democratization uh, success story relative to uh, many others. Uh, but I also like to point out that it's been a very, very flawed democracy. The first issue that I have, uh, which I'm constantly banging on about uh, to everybody's uh, annoyance, is that uh, the oligarchy has survived the end of the authoritarian regime hmm. and merely reconstituted in a democratic format by actually uh, colonizing the political parties, parliaments, and other institutions of democratic rule. So basically, all the major political parties are dominated by oligarchic interests who, whose origins you can trace to the new order. Uh, and therefore, and the, these oligarchs are, are drawn from, I mean, is it from the military? Is it the big bourgeoisie? If it's the big bourgeoisie, is it manufacturing, extractive? What kind of, where do they come uh, it, from? It's, it's, again, mainly an alliance between the big bourgeoisie and the upper echelons of the uh, political bureaucratic infrastructure with the military sort of uh, relegated to a semi-junior partner for some time now, but uh, recently uh, and from time to time actually showing signs of, uh, of wanting to get into the act uh, a bit more strongly than they have. Now, mind you, the military, you know, the military's sort of formal representation within parliament and so on, that's gone, but former military officers uh, representing the institution institutional interests of the military uh, permeate through the political parties. Mm. Uh, and secondly, they also permeate through state-owned companies uh, and various other institutions. And uh, the other thing is that uh, the access economically and politically of the military in the Indonesian political economy uh, has become decentralized in that you will have uh, local military commands uh, developing, you know, sort of local oligarchic kinds of alliances at the local level with local businesses, local politicos, local bureaucrats, uh, and so on. So this oligarchy, re I think, remains really uh, significant. And it's made sure that, uh, you know, the, what the driving force of Indonesian democracy really is, uh, is the practice of rapacious corruption in that democratic politics really uh, is there to determine which faction of the oligarchy. And these are not factions which are set in stone. They're very fluid. They just change according to contingency. Uh, has the closest access to the levers of, of economic and political power, uh, uh, to public uh, uh, resources and institutions for the purposes of private accumulation. And that is actually, I think, one of the main, well, I, I think the main problem with Indonesian democracy. And that has spilled over really to things like, uh, you know, sort of the relegation of matters like human rights and uh, 
broader democratic rights, freedom of the press, and so on, to 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 the background, uh, especially uh, lately. Ironically, <coughs> under a president who in twenty fourteen, <coughs> sorry, was first elected, now at the end of his second term, as a reformer, because he was uh, this fellow known as Jokowi, uh, Jokowi Dodo is his full name, uh, is considered to be you know. Out, having been outside of the new order oligarchy, I mean, he's mm. young enough not to have been at the center of the new order. Uh, so people thought that he'd be a reformer. He came from you know small town business, small business origins. But frankly, I was always skeptical of that story because he could never have been catapulted onto the uh, national mm. stage without the financial and political support of oligarchic interests. And, and so he has been, and it has been right. shown over his tenure that this has been the case, and he has not been the reformer that uh, he was made out to be. So I, I just wanted to, um, maybe just to wind back a little bit, just in political economic terms, how transformative were the years under the new order uh, in terms of its developmentalist regime? I mean, was it based on driving exports around the resource extraction, uh, encouraging domestic manufacturing, and, and how much did that change the landscape of Indonesian society over those years? Well, there were different phases of the new order. The first phase, I would say, was 1966 to 1973, where uh, economic development was basically based on bringing in as much foreign investment and foreign aid as possible. Remember, this was during the Vietnam War, during the height of the so-called Cold War, which was never particularly cold in my part of Asia. Mm. <laughs> uh, if right. if yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't think that the Vietnamese would have experienced the Cold War <laughs> as not being particularly heated, nor the Koreans and so forth. Indeed. So yeah. anyway, uh, so the West was quite happy that a sort of a mi- military uh, dominated at first uh, regime that was pro-Western and had a developmentalist inclination, uh, came to power after the demise of the old Sukarno regime, which had been very close to the Indonesian Communist Party, by the way, uh, which had been uh, the third largest communist party in the world in the mid-1960s. So they were very happy about that. And of course, uh, they're quite happy to to, uh, provide the uh, foreign aid uh, and the foreign investment. So that was 66 to 73. Uh, 73, uh, uh, an event occurred on, on the other side of Asia, and that was the Yom Kippur War. Uh, and uh, as you know, uh, many of your uh, listeners uh, would know, some would remember, depending on what their ages are, uh, that OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, uh, of which Indonesia was a member then, hiked up oil prices, which... Uh, caused the uh, you know sort of energy crisis, uh, but uh, uh, re- resulted in an oil boom uh, uh, for Indonesia. So, so there were there were windfall oil uh, profits that the state controlled, right? And uh, this was the basis for a lot of the uh, more monopolistic oligop- oligopolistic sort of policies that developed which was uh, catered towards developing a 
domestic bourgeoisie. But this domestic bourgeoisie would be extremely cronyistic mm. and would have none of the progressive sort of uh, political connotations uh, that, you know, uh, uh, often uh, linked to it in European history of the uh, 18th or 19th centuries. Mm. So uh, this was a, a, a very closely intertwined bourgeoisie, which, you know, became an element of that developing oligarchy uh, that, that I mentioned. Now, uh, now the, 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 the uh, sort of uh, you, variety, I suppose, in Indonesia is that uh, that big bourgeoisie was mainly ethnic Chinese. Yeah. Right. And there's a historical reason for that, in that uh, the ethnic Chinese, because of colonial policy under Dutch uh, you know, colonialism uh, before Indonesian independence, uh, occupied the position of middlemen, really, between the agricultural economy and uh, the, the more modern economy controlled by, by, by Dutch uh, capitalism, colonial capitalism. And they were basically uh, best placed in terms of their regional and international sort of uh, trade networks, uh, access to, you know, money, you know, uh, and uh, sort of uh, also domestic trading uh, networks amongst themselves to be the basis of that big bourgeoisie to be developed by the new order and in which uh, political bureaucrats really became uh, partners, you know, simply because they had the uh, the ability to make laws, to uh, make regulations and enforce or not enforce them. Uh, and therefore, you also had an element of the bourgeoisie, which was a smaller one, that came out of the political bureaucracy itself. In fact, from political mm. bureaucratic families, most especially the family of President Suharto himself, which developed alliances with, with, with many of these big Chinese, ethnic Chinese conglomerates. But the point I'm I would make here is that uh, it fit, suited the new order very well to, ha to have this situation because the ethnic Chinese business uh, you know, sec section would never pose a political threat because they were a minority and mm. they were dependent on the protection of the state. And there was a lot of, some of it actually cultivated by the state, animosity towards ethnic Chinese in general. Of course, these hostilities, animosities, you know, lot, some of it go back to the colonial period, but a lot of this was nurtured and cultivated by the new order. For example, it uh, did not allow the, the, the teaching of the uh, Chinese language. Uh, it did not allow uh, uh, print material in, in, in Chinese script. You know, all of these things, you know, made it look like, well, it was protecting the people, <laughs> you know, against mm. uh, ethnic Chinese business, whereas actually the political bureaucrats, the big families, you know, were in cahoots. But so basically you had a situation where uh, a big business, because of its ethnic makeup and also because of you know, the structure of power, you know, that dependence on, on state patronage and all that, uh, was often subservient to the wishes of the political bureaucrats, especially the Suharto family itself, because it needed it, its protection. Right. Now, uh, the, the third phase 
took place uh, in the early 1980s when international oil prices fell and then Indonesia underwent a period uh, in which it pursued export-oriented industrialization on the basis of uh, cheap labor, export-oriented cheap labor, garments, you know, uh, textiles, footwear, uh, that sort of thing, bringing in investment from uh, Korea and uh, and, uh, uh, Taiwan and so on. uh, And... The, this actually became uh, uh, a major pillar of the economy uh, in, in terms of, you know, sort of exports uh, until 1997-1998. But together with that, in throughout that period in the 80s and 90s, there was a neoliberalization process whereby, you know, uh, access to financial markets became, you know, uh, easier. Uh, uh, there was a liberalization of the banking sector, uh, you know, the stock market, etc. All of these basically providing cheap money really to the big conglomerates and the families connected to them and mm. therefore making them even bigger, right? But as we saw in, in after 97-98, a lot of these were fragile because uh, they, they had accumulated lots of foreign debt. Uh, uh, and the foreign debtors had said, had thought, well, it's fine to give them lots of money because, well, the Suharto family is behind them, you know, and, and there's this big authoritarian structure that will make sure that all this doesn't collapse. Mm. But it does collapse, <laughs> uh, right. which caused a lot of problems. And at the end, the state had to bail them out, you know, uh, the democratic state in 99, 2000 and so on. And uh, a, a lot of these big businesses have gotten away with uh, not paying off their debts and uh, buying back their companies at fire sale prices. And basically, they've they a lot of them, you know, they, they, they were certainly damaged, but many of them survived that crisis to be uh, dominant again in, right. in, in, in the democratic period. Yeah, so, sorry, so was I too, again, too a story. there? I'm sorry. But no, no, it's fine. I mean, it's, and, you know, I guess an, another way of illustrating the persistence of the oligarchy in, in Indonesia and indeed maybe even the, the absence of, of a left um, after, you know, the experience of, of murder or anti-communism in, in, in the middle part of the century. But we'll come back maybe to that. Uh, one last kind of element of backdrop, which um, on an ideological question, particularly kind of the state ideology of Pancasila. And I, I mean, I'm not very familiar with it. Mm-hmm. I encountered it probably for the first time, as I suspect many listeners did in Joshua Oppenheimer's 2012 film, The Act of Killing, um, in which you're also, you see this mm-hmm. featured in that film, um, the youth wing, the Pancasila youth with their orange camouflage fatigues and whatever. I mean, yeah. that's where I first encountered it. If you could just briefly explain mm. what this official ideology was and, and indeed continues okay. to be. Okay, well, I mean, it has a history in that in 1945, Sukarno uh, invented it as a way of placating two different wings of the Indonesian nationalist movement's elites. One tended towards the establishment of a secular nationalist state, the other one tended towards the establishment of a state that was more based on Islamic precepts. Okay, and Sukarno basically invented Pancasila uh, 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 as a way of avoiding conflict between these two groups, because it does have 
Number one, Pancasila means five principles, by the way. And the first principle is belief in one God. So that placates the Muslims, right? And, and uh, the third principle is Indonesian national unity, which placates the nationalists. Then you've got the fifth principle, which is social justice for all, which placates both, right? I mean, yeah. So, so in a way, it was a rather, you know, genius move. <laughs> And uh, but Pancasila has lived a, a long, circuitous life, and and the thing is, it you know, you know, yeah, I don't want to use jargon, but in many ways, it's a bloody empty signifier. Right. <laughs> you can put right. anything in it. <laughs> okay, you can put anything in it, and uh, and what Suharto did during the New Order is that he codified it in a status, nationalist, authoritarian, developmentalist sort of mold, mm. right? And so, you know, the meaning or, or, and practice of Pancasila became much more, uh, what is it, uh, maybe, uh, you know, towards, towards uh, the direction of, of uh, a state and society uh, unified in such a way that uh, really society should not uh, uh, rebel against the state, right? Uh, because right. Uh, because we have one common interest, you know, sort of organic status sort of idea, uh, and uh, it, it, it sort of became very very culturalist in in that it's it, it, it posited that uh, there was an authentic Indonesian culture. Uh, I mean, which is very difficult to sort of, you know, fabricate in that, you know, it's a very, very uh, uh, culturally diverse archipelago of, uh, of thousands of islands with uh, hundreds of ethnic groups. But, you know, but there was this whole science of Pancasila, <laughs> pseudoscience, made right. up during that period, which everybody in school, including myself, had to had to consume, and I must say that it has had an effect on generations of Indonesians. You know, right? Uh, and the thinking and the and view enforcing of the some world. sort of conformity as well. That's and, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's it, it's it became a way of inculcating conformity and obedience, and really the the, the highest value really is that of harmony. And therefore, that is supposed to be conflictual to liberal ideas of competition and leftist ideas of class conflict. Right, right. Okay, so that that's the important bit. About mm -hmm. So, I mean, which, which, by the way, is still the state ideology. Yeah. Right, right. And I mean, to, to switching tack slightly, but remaining kind of within ideological questions. I mean, I think one of the ways, one of the few ways, I think that Indonesia has featured in often really dumb Western mainstream media discussion over the past two decades, uh, at least this is my impression, was um, particularly with Western concern over radical Islam and how Indonesia supposedly provided potentially a model for other countries and being more moderate and so on. I don't want to dwell on that portrayal of things, but you have written about an Islamization of, of Indonesian society over the past decades. Um, and I wonder if mm. you could describe what that looks like and, and indeed maybe account for why that's happened? Well, in the first instance, 
the sort of Islamization of, of Indonesian society is linked to a global process within the Islamic world. Such a process uh, occurred from North Africa to the Middle East, to South Asia, to Southeast Asia, uh, from the 70s uh, and the 80s, you know, spurred to some extent by the fact that uh, there was uh, uh, oil money to be spent uh, in the Middle East in 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 providing uh, new educational, uh, religiously oriented institutions for people from other parts of the world to to go study. Lots of Indonesians went to study in in the Gulf states uh, uh, in, in the seventies and eighties and nineties, uh, and they brought with them. Uh, 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 an understanding of Islam that was more uh, orthodox in the sense that it was it it came to displace really many of the elements of what you might call folk Islam in Indonesia, which mm. actually is you know historically has been predominant in different parts of Indonesia. I mean the most important you know, well known is the sort of syncretic Javanism of, of Central Java, in which you have uh, you know uh, sort of traditional folk religions uh, mixed up with Hindu Buddhist ideas and, and Islamic, including Sufistic ideas, right. know, uh, being displaced by more uh, orthodox, more rigidly codified understandings. So that is one element of, of, of the story. But the second element of the story is that, you know, I said that, you know, certain Islamic organizations did follow the military uh, in uh, overthrowing Sukarno and in crushing the, the left in Indonesia. But uh, as soon as the new order came into power, they were basically uh, cast aside by the new order. And there was a very simple reason for that. Uh, with the uh, with the uh, sort of well, with the destruction of, of of the left, particularly the Indonesian Communist Party, and the historical weakness of liberalism in Indonesia, which was only you know sort of you could only find it really amongst the intelligentsia of of of, of the you know at that time still relatively small urban population. Uh, it was only Islam that had the capacity to have a grassroots base. And uh, the new order was premised on the ability to demobilize uh, social movements at the grassroots. Mm. So, any, so any social movement? Any, any at all, you know, that, that could if, you know, pose a threat to the existing order. So the Muslims got to be, you know, sort of uh, actually... Uh, took the brunt of state repression throughout the uh, mid and late seventies, through the through throughout the eighties, uh, and uh, as a result, you had many different kinds of splinter Islamic groups. In Indonesia, you've got the Muhammadiyah and the Nadatul Ulama, which are the basic mainstream organizations. They go all the way back to the colonial period. They're fairly, you know, flexible. They can basically work with anybody in power because they need state patronage in order to survive. Okay, and that's basically the re reason. But then 
you get all of these younger people who get discontented and disgruntled. And by the way, there was also a a kind of uh, separatist Darul Islamist movement between 1949 and 1962 in Indonesia, which was crushed in the 62. They were the descendants of the people who wanted more of an Islamic-oriented state, yeah? Uh, now, now these guys, though, uh, were mobilized in the uh, fight against the Communist Party in, in 65, 66. Right. Right? They were crushed in 62, 65, 66, they were mobilized by the same people who had crushed them. <laughs> right, so, so they, they, were expected, the, yeah. they were on the other side of the bayonet for a bit and then, and then moved on to the other, yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, so, you know, after that, they expected to be, you know, to be, well, to, to, to enjoy parts of the spoils of power. Right. But then they were cast aside as well. Uh, and a lot of these groups, you know, that then form organizations, by the way, some of which, you know, you know, you can say definitively were cultivated by military intelligence itself mm. uh, just to give uh, the new order uh, uh, the uh, pretense uh, or the, the, the justification to be authoritarian, you know, sort right. of or save ourselves. Save the country from these Islamic radicals, which they cultivated themselves in some mm, 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 yeah. <laughs> But after having been cultivated, then they developed their own, you know, sort of uh, uh, roots. And you had, and this was, the, these were the origins of what became known as the Jama Islamia linked to Al Qaeda, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, Al Qaeda having been, ha having come out of or the Taliban having come out of US patronage and then coming to bite the US says wow yeah how could you, <laughs> can you imagine yeah yeah and yeah it's ha happened in sort of the same way in a smaller scale in Indonesia right mm -hmm. so so But they the, they became if i could ask i mean the character of of um islamic politics or islamic infused politics in indonesia today Does it have that kind of radical character? Or does it can be characterized as political Islam, or is it, I mean, how would you? Well, Indonesian it? Islam is unlike, uh, let's say, Malaysian Islam, very heterogeneous. I mean, I, I look, I, I don't want to simplify Malaysian Islam. That you know, there, there there are varieties there as well. Okay, but we're not talking about Malaysia now. <laughs> uh, but Indonesia is much more. Uh, What is it? Uh, uh, there's greater variety of kinds of Islamic propensities, uh, whether culturally or politically, in Indonesia. Partly because Dutch colonial state, really unlike the British in Malaysia, did not try to impose a, a kind of policy of uniformizing these Islamic forces. Right. Right. So, so you know, you, to answer to your question, I mean, there are elements of Indonesian Islam. That have a radical bent, but there are others, you know, like Muhammadiyah and Natul Ulama, which actually are the uh, organizations that give Indonesia the reputation of being a champion of moderate Islam, mm. because they will basically accommodate anybody who's in power, right, and don't really want to rock the boat. Now, but some of these radicals also are very different. I mean, you've got some people who are outright terrorists. Right, and, and you know, a lot of these are in jail now. A lot of these are, you know, sort of splintered and 
further down underground more than they've ever been. There are also people you might call radical, but uh, they want to, uh, but they don't actually use the sort of violent, you know, bombing and so on that, that you know, the strategies associated with the Jama Islamia and those kinds of organizations. People, uh, people like the Indonesian Dif Islamic Defenders Front, which now is called something else. I mean, they, they basically, what they do is they mobilize people in the streets. Uh, they also have connections with uh, organized crime, you know, I I at the street level. Uh, so are able to mobilize, you know, sort of uh, uh, street level infrastructures or, of, of, you know, sort of distribution of, 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 of social largesse, yeah, mm. at, at a very small scale, at a very small scale. And they, they do organize public demonstrations for or against particular candidates and so on during elections or and so on. And then you've got uh, other people who who say, well, okay, we're, we're, we're okay with democracy, but we, we'd like uh, a bit more of, Islam, of an Islamic flavor in it. Mm. Yeah? So, so, so how, there, how does there are varieties that... of it. Yeah. I wonder how that how that then fits with something that you've written about this notion of Islamic populism in in, in Indonesia, which as as I've as I've understood it, to an extent in the absence of a left is a can act as somewhat of a vehicle for the voicing of grievances or claims about social justice, but in a much more but but not for uh, outright contestation, I guess to put it that way. Is that yeah. It? Well, I mean, Islamic populism. It, it, First of all, it's not a phenomenon which is only found in Indonesia. I think it's found across Muslim societies where leftist articulations of grievances or even liberal ones are, are not possible. Mm. Uh, and therefore, logically, uh, people go to avenues that are ideologically and logistically possible, right? Uh, and and there is enough sources within Islamic political traditions, uh, uh, whether you follow the jurisprudence or not, but certainly political traditions uh, that actually voice uh, aspirations of social equality, egalitarianism, social justice, and so on. And uh, this is what a lot of uh, Islamic organizations try to portray themselves as being a representative of, you know, sort of articulating these grievances, which otherwise would not be articulated uh, uh, through uh, other avenues. And, and e but even within this, this, you know, this thing that I call Islamic populism, uh, there are different kinds of uh, varieties because basically it, 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 it is a tendency that is a reaction. It's, it's a reaction to things, right? Uh, and it's a reaction to, to, to a world order and an Indonesian social order, which is increasingly uh, unequal socially mm. uh, and, and even within a democracy, uh, uh, has not uh, stopped the uh, sort of, uh, what is it, the uh, accumulation of, of wealth within a small group of people, uh, has blocked the, uh, the the social, upward social mobility of 
more devout people in the middle class who, you know, have all these dreams of going, going up, you know, uh, the social ladder uh, and have been blocked by the structure of capitalism, which, which, you know, makes that really difficult. And they go to Islam to do that. Right. But, right. Uh, 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 but, but they can do that in, in ways that are, that are, that are, that, that, that are numerous in, in kind, in, in their, in their, Variety in that uh, there are, for example, you know, you know, sort of sort of Muslim politicians who articulate a populist uh, sort of stance where they say, "Well, the state has to pay more attention to the majority." By the majority, they mean the Muslim majority mm. uh, to the poor, and the poor, the majority of the poor are Muslim, right? But by just by the, the religion on their identity card. Uh, uh, but they will also support the neoliberal economic policies. Yeah, and, and you do have neoliberal populism in Brazil <laughs> and yeah. other places, right? So it's not, you know, something that that is unheard of. It's just the ideological content is, is different. But then you have other people who go, well, what we what we needed is a, is an Islamic state. Right, yeah. and these are the people at at the margins of that tendency of Islamic populism because they have, yeah, unless they're being cultivated by Indonesian intelligence agencies, really have no access to power. And there are people that are somewhere in the middle, you know, who who, who are brokers. Really, they broker the street uh, gangs and and so on, and the politicians and businesses, uh, and they basically, uh, you know, sell. You know the the, the grievances right. articulated by Islamic populism, and the result is okay. Candidates and so on that are supported may win, but you know the vast majority of people don't get anything out of it. But the brokers do, right? And I mean, it, it, does this mean that Indonesian politics is quite identitarian or break, broken down into identitarian lines, or is it maybe asymmetrical? In that regard, that you have, I, I this... think it's a, asymmetrical because you know one of the things I say about it, about populism, not it's not just Islamic populism. What I say about populism is that it is a, a an asymmetrical multi class alliance. That's what I think of populism everywhere, you know, and, and there are different different elements of that alliance that dominate depending on the context. The, yeah, and and the social histories of the different uh, you know sort of uh, societies. Now, I- Indonesia has you know uh, also has got nationalist populist kinds of, of of traditions, but in terms of Indonesian Islamic populism, the, the, the it is dominated mainly by by this sort of uh, aspiring uh, a more educated middle class. Whose aspirations, you know, uh, of social mobility and so on, are not quite fulfilled, in spite of having been educated, you know, and, and having the skills that they think that they have. But see, the, the difference with Turkey, for example, is that there is no big Islamic business class, right? So, so there's no, cannot, so there's no equivalent to the AKP or something like that. There is no equivalent to the AKP, the PKS, which people often, you know, compare to the AKP has no money in that I've, you know, I've researched their economic base and their economic, you know, sort of supporters are really small business people, unlike the AKP, who, you know, 
you know, who, who after the you know, neoliberalization in the 80s became big, you know, provincially based bourgeoisie that became the financial basis for the rise of the AKP. You don't have that in Egypt. So what, and you don't have something in Egypt either where you have a, you know, had, you know, a strong Muslim brotherhood who were able to sort of distribute largesse, you know, through clinics and, and social welfare policies to the urban and rural poor. And so what you have in Indonesia really is an Islamic populism stuck in its middle class shell, right, mm. uh, has got no links upwards and therefore uh, has, hasn't got the financial capacity to make the links downward, you know, by providing right. these social welfare policies and so on. Uh, and therefore, they become really uh, a force only in two senses. One, incidentally, and that is when they are needed for the purposes of intra-oligarchy conflict. And secondly, from the point of view that their rhetoric, which is moralistic, you know, it, and that moralism is connected to their ideas of social justice and so on, you know, is mainstreamed. And that's important. So even parties that are nationalist, you know, in, in their uh, sort of uh, outlook and so on, have taken up a lot of the moralistic kinds of ideas that come out of this Islamic populist stream. So in some ways, you know, if I was going to say, the, 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 the sort of uh, analogy would be how in the West, you know, fringe right-wing ideas have become mainstreamed by the sort of, you know, mainstream right-wing parties. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, the center of politics has moved to the right. Yeah. I mean, that's... Okay, so, that's so without being in power, the Islamic populists, and it's really difficult for Islamic populists to be in power in Indonesia, unlike in, in, in Turkey... But so without being in power, they do exert an influence nevertheless. That, yeah? that's, very, that's very interesting. And I, I mean, I, I'm conscious of the time. So I think moving oh, forward. Sorry, I'm kind I'm of yapping on, aren't I? Sorry. No, not at all. No, it's, it's, all, it's all good stuff. Um, so I want to try to get as much good stuff in there. Talking about looking at this election, and we don't need to dwell too much on the, you know, the kind of ins and outs or prognoses or anything like that. But thinking a little bit about maybe what Indonesian elections have been. 2014, 2019, and then now um, this year again, um, you've described recent elections as a confrontation between varying populisms. And in that regard, it does seem to echo a little bit of what's going on in kind of Western European politics or, you know, even North American politics for that matter as well. So maybe you could um, sketch out for us what that means and, and maybe talk us through kind of the main candidates and, and how they fit into that story. Okay. I think that the uh... The first thing that I would like to say is that uh, unlike uh, many of my other colleagues who write about Indonesian politics, I do not adhere to the idea that there has been a sharp polarization in Indonesia between secular nationalists and Islamists. Okay? Hmm. What... Uh, what I, in fact, what I suggest 
instead is that secular nationalist forms of populism and Islamic forms of populism are cultural resource pools that can be adopted and adjusted as necessary by any of the competing oligarchic factions. Mm -hmm. So none of this fight is ideological, none of these fights are ideological in nature fundamentally, but they take on this ideological kind of uh, out, you know, sort of superficial, you know, appearance because of the rhetoric that needs to be adopted and employed to mobilize people you know, to support particular kinds of candidates. Mm -hmm. And it's always, you always have to talk about employment, social justice, you know, this, you know, the, the, these sorts of things which, you know, uh, people worry about in their everyday lives. And the, 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 the sort of uh, language, a political language that is available to do that is actually available from Indonesian secular nationalist populist traditions as well as Islamic ones. And therefore, you find candidates right now who, you know, who while they might, you know, sort of originate from networks, social, economic, and plural networks that you can identify more as being nationalists or, or, or of, or Islamists, they will combine these whenever, you know, however necessary, however, you know, however is useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, for example, one of the candidates right now, uh, the front runner, in 2014 and 2019, used a lot of Islamic populist sort of uh, sentiment and so on. But, you know, one of his opponents uh, has more legitimacy amongst this community and now he's veered more towards uh, nationalist jargon. Uh, and, you know, it's entirely, to me, you know, I, unsurprising because the, the 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 fight is not ideological it's not about particular programs it's not about particular policies it's not even about particular you know uh, representations of, of 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 class coalitions it's about which parts of the oligarchy as they are constituted now in, in, in factions which can change at any time you know will have the greater, closer access to state resources and institutions for the purposes of private accumulation. Mm. That's all it is. So there's no pro popular component whatsoever in, in this election in any um, significant way. I don't even want to say necessarily like... Not in any substantial. Any, I, yeah. Well, there is a Labour Party that has been established uh, and... Uh, you know, I, I'd like to see it uh, do well, but it, it, it is also fragmented between those who want to support the Islamist candidate, you know, the more, sorry, not the Islamist, but the candidate who is more associated with Islamist networks, one that wants to connect with uh, one of the two that are more connected to sort of uh, state nationalist networks. And there are those who say, uh, screw them all, 
<laughs> you know, uh, none of them are pro-labor. And this is the minority in that party. Right, right, right. So as much as, you know, it'd be nice to have a, a Labour Party represented in Parliament, however, it, it, you know, that Labour Party looks like, uh, it, it's not going to be a main player uh, in the fight. Uh, all, you know, in, in terms of social organisations, mass organisations that actually have an infrastructure, in, that, that actually have finances, that actually have uh, uh, organisational capacity, they are linked one way or another or have been bought one way or another by the uh, uh, competing oligarchic factions. Right. Um, and oh, That's a very of, cheerful prognosis. Well, yeah, I mean, you did hint that, that Yokoi, uh, who you know, broke through in 2014 as someone who was not part of the oligarchy, I mean, came from the middle class, he did have money, moneyed interest behind him. It nevertheless seemed to signal that there could be some bit of light between um, within the kind of traditional political oligarchy that someone else could sneak through maybe. And I guess from what you're saying is that that, to the extent that there was ever a bit of a window, that's completely closed now in terms of... and and part uh, of Frankly, I never thought that there was as big a window as many of my colleagues at that time thought because it was clear that he had to cater to the interests that had put him there. And it became clear very, very quickly. And in his second term, uh, he's been responsible for uh, uh, legislation that has curbed labor rights, uh, reduced uh, sort of uh, environmental scrutiny over development projects. He has uh, presided over <coughs> laws that uh, that make people vulnerable if they criticize uh, those in power through uh, the internet, as I'm doing now. Uh, and uh, they've, they've exerted pressure on universities and so on to, to conform. Uh, and uh, right now they're using state facilities in the, in, in, in the form of uh, uh, social assistance programs to actually uh, cheat in the elections. Right. And, uh, just, uh, yeah. and just finally, I mean, uh, you know, Prabowo, who's likely to win, I mean, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 7th of February, so it, oh, the elections are a week away. Are, are things likely to mm. get worse under him? I mean, do you see any significant change, of course, in any significant way? Well, I think it, in, uh, it can only get worse with him in power because uh, he was the son-in-law of Suharto, he uh, was a, uh, a New Order general with connections with, you know, he, he was at the heart of the New Order. You know, he has, you know, strong business interests that are uh, tied to these oligarchic networks and extractive industries and so on. Uh, and he has a horrible track record uh, in the area of human rights. Right. Well, a, a cheering note to finish on. I'd love to continue this discussion because I had uh, a lot more to, to, to touch on. A lot more about Indonesia. Sorry, I was yapping there. a bit too much. No, 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 no. Yeah. It, it, it only means that um, if, you'd, if you'd be willing to uh, come on another time uh, so we can continue this, this discussion. But thank you very much. Yeah, okay. Well, my pleasure.